today is Pentecost Sunday. As Austin alluded to a moment ago, this day on which the church commemorates and celebrates some of the events described in Acts chapter 2, which then in many ways begins to give shape to much of the rest of the story told throughout the New Testament. So Pentecost Sunday, if you haven't buckled up already, you can go ahead and do that. Steve, are you buckled up? All right. So before we get into the text we're going to consider, remember, there are these seasons that we walk through as the church every year. The, the church calendar organizes the year around the story of redemption. And so every year as we walk through these seasons, we are immersing ourselves in that great story of redemption and retelling it over and over again. So each liturgical year begins not in January, but it begins four Sundays prior to Christmas Day with Advent, the season of waiting and anticipation as we look forward to the coming Messiah. Following Advent, of course, is Christmas, a 12-day season of rejoicing and feasting, and then Epiphany as we celebrate and remember the revelation of King Jesus to the Gentiles, followed by the season of Lent, a season of fasting, and a season marked by repentance, which we just observed and walked through a couple of months ago, which of course then leads into the great season of celebration, Easter. Seven weeks of celebrating and rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we actually conclude this week. So the great story of redemption that we are retelling every year, the story that we are led to through the church calendar, doesn't end with Easter Sunday. It doesn't end with resurrection, but it ends with the story of Pentecost. So crucifixion and resurrection are not the end of the story of redemption. There is still a critical component in this story, and that is the life of the church continuing the mission of Jesus in our world, which begins at least in an official way on the day of Pentecost. This is a part of the story that we are still living in, the body of Christ gathering to proclaim that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is king and is restoring and rescuing creation. Luke, the gospel author, goes to great lengths, especially in his second volume, the book of Acts, to detail some of the history of this growing church. But the book of Acts is much more than just a historical account. Luke is providing a theology that, as the gospel is making its way from the epicenter of Jerusalem, making its way throughout the Roman world and eventually to Rome itself. And in the beginning of this book, the book of Acts, Luke explains that after the resurrection, before the ascension of Jesus, Jesus instructs his followers to remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Now, when his followers hear this instruction, it appears to cheer their spirits, at least momentarily. You must be thinking, okay, well, finally, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel. This is what we've been waiting for, and so far you've disappointed us time after time after time, but 
This must be the time when you are going to restore our former glory. Jesus responds, no, you're, you're still not quite understanding. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has fixed. But then Jesus goes on in verse 8 and says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. This is the movement that Acts is detailing based on the words of Christ himself. Once you receive the Spirit, Jesus says you will be my witnesses. So the gospel is advancing from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. In the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to the city of Rome. Of course, Rome wasn't literally the end of the earth, but it is strategic in this story that Luke is telling. It does symbolically, for Luke's audience, represent the end of the earth, this movement of the gospel. And at the beginning of this movement, Luke seems to stress that the advancing kingdom that is eventually going to make it to the end of the earth, the mission of Christ's followers that they were now a part of, that mission is impossible, Luke suggests, without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in the followers of Christ. This is what the disciples were waiting for the coming Holy Spirit, which would then empower them to continue the great mission of reconciliation that Christ had inaugurated, which brings us to today's text in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Luke says, when the day of Pentecost arrived at the beginning of Acts 2, what is this day of Pentecost that had arrived? Well, it was a festival. Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest, was celebrated by serious Jews seven full weeks, 50 days after Passover. This was one of the three major feasts for Israel, one that actually required a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. So Passover is a feast of worship, a feast of thanksgiving. And so here we are, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, this festival, and all of those who follow Jesus in Jerusalem have gathered together to pray and to wait, as they had been instructed by Jesus himself to do. This is something we see fairly consistently from Luke, that connection between times of devoted prayer and these sort of identifiable, yes, inexplicable, but identifiable and even dramatic encounters with the Holy Spirit. The followers of Jesus are devoting themselves to prayer, unified in both desire and purpose, and something 
rather strange begins to happen, especially strange to our ears as 21st century Westerners. We are told by Luke that there were these very observable physical signs like a loud sound reminiscent of a strong wind or fire that appears above each of these individuals. And then they begin to speak in other languages, Luke says, as the Spirit enabled them. Admittedly, as 21st century Westerners, this can seem a bit loony. Is anybody willing to admit that? I mean, for us, these signs that are manifesting in Acts chapter 2 seem rather arbitrary on the surface. I mean, what in the world is happening with this sound of a strong wind and fire above each head? But for Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, these visible signs of the Holy Spirit, especially wind and fire, but even various languages, these physical signs carried with them strong eschatological connotations, strong connections with the last days. For many, this would have signified the arrival of the last days. Many are probably thinking, understanding these connections between these physical signs and eschatological events, well, the day of salvation must be upon us. This would have been a striking moment for Jews who were very familiar with these sort of signs that pointed to the end of one era and the beginning of a new one. So what is happening here? with these wild events described in Acts chapter 2? And in what way is this meaningful for us in the 21st century? Or what way is it normative? And, or is there even a sense in which some of these crazy accounts are important for us? Probably unsurprisingly for you, I want to argue that it is important for us because we too are a part of the church. We are on the same mission that these early followers of Jesus we're on, although admittedly in a much less visible way and in a much less strategic way. The, the development of the church isn't on our shoulders, but today as we think through this story, as we read through it, talk about it, I want us to simply consider a couple of what I believe to be common misconceptions about the Holy Spirit in general and about Pentecost specifically. Misconceptions of both those who identify as Pentecostal and maybe those who would balk at the idea of a Pentecostal experience. So three that I want to highlight there are probably many more. We only have time for three. So the first idea I want to consider is the idea that the Holy Spirit appears on the scene for the first time in this story in Acts chapter 22, sort of out of nowhere, on the day of Pentecost. The idea that the Holy Spirit was absent throughout the history of the world, absent throughout the biblical narrative, and then, and only then, as Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends. They're like ships passing in the night, or two beings riding side by side escalators, one going up and one going down, sort of just waving at one another as they pass. The Holy Spirit is seen as 
just arriving, and as a result, maybe even seen or demoted to this position of being a substitute for Jesus during his absence. Sort of like removing the star player from an athletic competition to get him a drink of water, or him or her a drink of water, or to get them a rest and some more energy so that they can continue. And in their place, you put the inferior quality athlete as their substitute. And I think in the popular imagination, maybe especially of Pentecostals, that is sort of what we tend to resort to. The Holy Spirit is the substitute for Jesus appearing on the scene for the first time in Acts chapter 2. And of course, when you explain it that way, that seems absurd. And of course, that is not the correct way to think about this. The Holy Spirit was never absent. The Holy Spirit is present even in creation. Right at the beginning of our scriptures, we read this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the second verse of our Bible says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters at creation. The Holy Spirit is present in creation. And as we watch the rest of this story, even in the Old Testament narrative, begin to play out, the Holy Spirit is also an active participant as the people of God are being formed and as their identity is being shaped. The third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, didn't suddenly arrive on the scene for the first time in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. However, according to the story we read in Acts chapter 2, Luke seems to suggest that in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is present in a new way, giving life in a new way to animating, we could say, animating followers of Christ in a new way and enabling them to be witnesses to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is king, witnesses in every culture among all peoples. How is that possible? In what way might the Holy Spirit be working and active in a new way? Well, to consider this, I'd like us to go back to our gospel reading for today from John, John chapter 14, where we saw Thomas, who in response to Christ's teaching and about his impending departure, Thomas says, well, that's great, but we have no idea where you're going. You're leaving, we don't know where you're going, and if we don't know where you're going, how can we follow you? We don't know how to get to your destination. Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip pipes up and says, okay, well, we can accept that, but if you are the only way to the Father, show us the Father. And then in verse 10, Jesus says this, our scripture reading from today. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus says, believe me. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. 
Later in that same chapter, when Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 17, he says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, he will dwell in you. It's also a critical part of the high priestly prayer. Several chapters later, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, in verse 21, we read this. Jesus praying says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Down in verse 23 of that chapter, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and I loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And this is a reality that is going to be made possible for those who follow me. God dwelling in them. So the Holy Spirit does not arrive for the first time in Acts chapter 2, but was present, it seems, and active in a new way. And that new activity of the Holy Spirit was enabling a new union between God and humanity. Just as the Father was in Jesus, Jesus in the Father, God is now in us and we are in him. And that presence, that union, that commingling makes a witness to the ends of the earth possible. It is the spirit of Jesus dwelling in us, continuing his mission in our world. So this is the first misconception. These are going to get shorter as we go on, so bear with me. First misconception, the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene for the first time in Acts chapter 2. No, the The Holy Spirit is not the backup during Christ's absence, but is and always has been God. Second misconception involves the tendency of many within Pentecostal traditions to reduce the story and thus reduce the work of the Holy Spirit down to nothing more than an individual experience. And I feel comfortable going after this one because my tradition has struggled greatly with it. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit is about my ecstatic experience. The Holy Spirit is about my spiritual experience, about my giftings, about me being empowered so that I can feel super spiritual and that couldn't be further from the truth of Pentecost. The empowering work of the Holy Spirit is only secondarily an individual experience. It is always about other people. Always about other people. And when we reduce it to our individual experience, we fundamentally misunderstand the nature of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1-8, when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, this is a part of his promise. He says, when the Holy Spirit arrives, you will receive power Not for yourself, you will receive power to bear witness to the end of the earth. This is what Pentecost is about. So we continue reading Acts chapter 2, our text for today, where we left off in verse 5. 
So they're in Jerusalem waiting, praying, unified in purpose, in prayer. The Holy Spirit descends. There are these remarkable visible signs. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of the speaking in tongues, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, he, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So there are a couple of different responses to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to say the least. Amazed and perplexed and mocking while these men are drunk. But we find, I think, even in this quintessential Pentecostal event, we find the primacy of bearing witness to other people. When these wild physical signs begin to manifest what is happening, well, the people who have gathered are speaking in various languages, Luke says, as the Spirit enabled them. But the even crazier part is that all of the Jews from various parts of the world with different native tongues, they hear these people speaking in their own language, declaring the mighty works of God. Not for their own benefit, not so that they might feel super spiritual, not so that they would have this ecstatic spiritual high, but so that Christ might be preached to and understood by all people. And understanding here in Luke's story is a critical component. Followers of Jesus here in the upper room are receiving what Christ had promised. They are in this state of intimate, dramatic, even remarkable, maybe we would call it spiritual ecstasy. But as soon as there is misunderstanding, what happens? That spiritual high is halted. My spiritual experience stops for the benefit of the one who is looking on. Luke says, some hear these babblers and assume these men are drunk. We've seen this sort of thing before. So there's all of this confusion. And Peter stops. Peter is having this incredible spiritual moment Finally, the fulfillment of what Christ had promised. The Holy Spirit descends. These incredible things are happening. And Peter stops his personal experience to explain. We're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, for goodness sake. That would be crazy. Now, this is what's going on. 
This simple explanation on the part of Peter, and it's not simple, he goes on to preach the good news that Christ is king, but I think this explanation again reveals that Pentecost is about others, not my spiritual experience. Heightened experience is interrupted for the sake of others in Pentecost. That is Pentecost. Pentecostal scholar Chris Green, who teaches at Southeastern University, makes this argument. He, he argues that Pentecost is not about God and me. It is about God in me, working through me to impact my neighbor in a life-giving way. And if we forget that fundamental part of Pentecost, it's going to take us in some devastating directions. We actually see Paul continually stress the same thing. Even in a place like 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, where he says your gifts, your personal experiences with the Holy Spirit are being elevated above all else, and it's causing you to harm your neighbor. Or it's causing you, leading you to not consider them at all in what's going on. Which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of Pentecost. It is about the world. It is not about your experience. All right, I better stop before I get into trouble. This is the movement that we see in Acts chapter 2. It is always out. It begins with a very personal experience as the followers of Jesus. I said I need to stop, but I, I'm just still going. It begins in this isolated upper room, but then what happens as we continue reading? It spills out into the streets of Jerusalem. And then what happens after that throughout the rest of Acts? It spills out into the streets of the entire Roman Empire to the end of the earth. So any notion of a Pentecostal experience, which is limited to my personal prayer time, is incomplete at best, and I would argue that it ends up being destructive in the end. Now I'll stop. Okay. Finally, the third common misconception as we begin to wrap this up. The idea that Holy Spirit empowerment is something of ages past, that it is limited to the disciples. Well, that can't be, because for Luke, Luke clearly includes the Apostle Paul in this mission. But I don't think it's even exclusive to the early apostles. The mission that is described in the book of Acts is not the mission of the apostles. It is the mission of God. It is the mission of Jesus working through the apostles. Yes, the, the apostles happen to be, as Craig Keener notes, the most visible and strategic representatives and leaders of this mission during the first century. But even in the first century, the apostles aren't the only participants in that mission in the world. I think Luke makes this clear at the end of Acts chapter 2, where Peter is explaining, again, in response to the misunderstanding, halting his personal experience to open the, the understanding of those who are looking on. At the end of that sermon, in verse 37, he says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, 
and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This gift of the Holy Spirit, which Luke explains enables us to be missional in our world, this gift from God is for everyone, Peter says, Luke quoting Peter says, everyone God calls to himself. Young, old, men, women, slave, free. Just as Joel had prophesied, which Peter now in Acts chapter 2 picks up and appeals to in this sermon, the spirit of Jesus, because of the descent of the Holy Spirit, now lives in me, now lives in you. The Holy Spirit consumes us enabling us to bear witness to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and extend the heart of the Father to our world. Amen. This is Pentecost. Not about me, about the other, not about my experience, about Christ being proclaimed as king and lord over all. This is Pentecost. The spirit of Jesus living in me, Spirit of Jesus living in you, empowering you to proclaim this good news. Thanks be to God. I want to conclude, leave you with this before we come to the table and gather around the body and blood of Jesus. And Tim and Beth, if you want to come forward as we prepare to serve communion. I want to leave us with this thought from Pentecostal scholar Cheryl Bridges Johns. She teaches at Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Tennessee. She said this, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to become a sign of the end, a time when the whole cosmos will be filled with God's glory. It is to live enchanted, walking in the presence, in thin places and in deep companionship with the living Jesus, to become in spirited flesh, fully human. Amen. Would you stand? As we prepare to approach the table, as we prepare to approach the body and blood of Jesus who promises to send the Holy Spirit, we read about that in Acts chapter 2. That same spirit that Jesus promised for the early followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2 lives in you, lives in you, consumes you, and prepares you to declare the glories of God, the great works of our Father to the world. Amen. Let me say this prayer for you before we come to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. This gift that, from the Father that you have promised that now dwells inside of us, making a union between us and God possible drawing us deeper into your love, deeper into your character. We thank you for your abiding presence that is with us even now. Almighty God, on this day, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you revealed the way to eternal life to every race and nation. Pour out this gift anew that by the preaching of the gospel, your salvation may reach to the ends of the earth 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table as we gather around the body and blood of our Lord?